Those intentions were more sinister from the beginning. I'm Nikki P, resident pop culture expert, here with utopian history expert Danny McCarthy. We're going to take a deeper look at the sci-fi movies that we love and see if maybe what we always thought were warnings were really blueprints. Join us as we pull at the crimson threads in our beloved cinema. Welcome to The Road to Hell. Well, anyways, how are we doing today, Dan? I'm doing very well. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying a Sunday in the holiday season, and this is a bit of a gift to me that I get to do some some talking about stuff again, and I haven't done that in a long while, so pretty pumped. Yeah, well, we're going to be talking about movies. We are. Uh, in particular, we're going to be talking about the 1968 original Planet of the Apes, which I was interested to find in doing my kind of little bit of background research I wanted to do on this was based on a 1930s book. Was it 1930s or 1919? Oh, um, was some, it that old? It's pretty old. Uh, I was actually pretty pretty interested to note that. can't remember the guy. Some French guy wrote it. Yeah, Pierre Boulard or something like that. And he was uh, he's also the same guy who wrote Bridge Over the River Kwai. To say that these are the two movies that that guy came, or two stories that that guy came up with was pretty interesting to me. Yeah, this guy is a classics machine. Apparently. Um, honestly, if I remember, I was looking into it, there's some other stuff that, like, I don't know if it, it if it became famous or it led to something else, like, shared names with it, but he had a pretty interesting catalog. Those are just, like, the two most notable. Mm-hmm. So, the reason we were getting together is because you are a bit of an expert on, we'll say, the Utopian Project and its history and how people have tried to do that throughout history. And I'm, I'm fascinated by that. And I happened to note, like when I was going through some of your your work that you've done, so many parallels that echo things that you see in like modern literature and modern television. Basically, things that you, they're writing in books a hundred years ago that they're kind of still harping on and trying to work into culture now via television and movies, things of that nature. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to help kind of get your your actual historical work that you've done out to a broader audience by saying, hey, let's talk about shit that people know and care about. So let's talk about movies. And uh, I asked you what you what you thought would be a good movie to start with, something that's one of your favorites of kind of like the dystopian uh, or utopian society. And you suggested Planet of the Apes, which I was all about. I haven't watched it in a number of years. And it was a, it was definitely an experience to go back and see after, probably, I don't think if I watched the original, probably 20 years at this point. Oh, man. So uh, it was a far more concise and like very simple movie and i really appreciated like how to its point it got and how quickly but what what was it about this movie that like you suggest thought it would be a good good one to start with right off the bat it is actually one of my very favorite movies i just think it's a lot of fun i think there are a lot of great lines i love the way it's shot and like you were saying it is a very concise and simple story but at its heart most is sort of displaying totalitarianism in action and throughout the whole movie this totalitarianism on the part of the apes is constantly being justified as like for the greater good for but it's a really simple story so it doesn't really need to get into all of these small unimportant details about how a totalitarian society might actually be run it's just like a very very sort of uh, portrayal of such a society. So I, I thought it would be a great introduction for us to do this movie show of ours and do a little pilot run here with this movie because it's all really cut and dried. There's very to the film other than sort of the the twist at the end. It's funny because it's, it's like, I don't know if it's, I, I just know the, know the twist so well because mm-hmm. it's such a part of history and, you know, media culture. Or it just, I don't know that it ever really seemed like a twist to me. And I think that yeah. that's kind of how ingrained the themes of this movie are into our culture at this point. That, well, of course, that's how this would end. It's like Darth Vader being 
Luke Skywalker's father. You know, it, no one movie is going to be shocked by it because it's a meme. Yeah. And the end of this movie is very much a meme in film. But in the book, actually, the twist is not present. Did you come across that? Uh, no, I did not. So in the book, um, I haven't actually read it, but I read synopsis, a, a synopsis of it. And it actually ends with, did you ever see the remake with Mark Wahlberg? I actually think I saw that one in theaters, believe it or not. It was thereabouts by my teenage years. I watched that one somewhat recently, and he actually winds up getting transported back to his own time. But everyone's apes. And like, there's this weird thing where his timeline crosses with the other one, and it's really ambiguous to know what actually happened. Whereas, obviously, in the original movie, it turns out that he'd been on Earth all along and that the human race had basically wiped itself out. Mm-hmm. That twist was the idea of... So for people who don't know, the original script for the Planet of the Apes movie was actually written by Rod Serling, the Twilight Zone guy. And if you think about it, with if you think about this movie with that in mind, very apparent, very quickly, that this is, in fact, like Twilight Zone, the movie. And there are... I actually wrote down as I was watching the movie, there are at least four Twilight Zone episodes, which are basically this, or rather this movie is a collection of four Twilight Zone episodes just smashed into one thing. And I love it because I'm a huge Twilight Zone fan. Oh, no, I, I, have to, I actually have the Twilight Zone Christmas specials behind me. Oh, so it's the only it's the it's now become the largest collection of DVDs I have as my Christmas collection. Which just just eked out my horror collection this 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 year. Wow! And you did the hundred days of horror thing, so that's that's really saying. It worked out to be a hundred and five days of horror, but yeah, I, I think it's no strange coincidence. Obviously, Rod Serling. I don't remember much about Rod's past, but you look at that time period and you look at the writing, you look at the themes, and to me, it all it boils down to this this one book called Silent Spring that. Uh, in the environmental movement, like took over. It was the everyone worships this book because it was the thing that, I guess, in in the modern culture, became the the beacon of where we need to go as a people, which is we need to wipe ourselves out, mm-hmm. or more importantly, everything that we do inevitably is going to wipe us out. To me, the the the, core, the, the big core of this movie, and it was it was you couldn't have you could have put a billboard up in the background of every scene that said humanity is evil. And extinction is its only like future, and it couldn't have been any more obvious. <laughs> and it was just it, to me, it was interesting how like how that was such a, a prevalent idea here. Like you, the, the, within the first few seconds of the movie, you have uh, Taylor complaining about humanity and like wishing humanity was better. Like right, right there in the opener, he's sitting there smoking a cigar, thinking, "Ah, oh, man, wonder what those evil bastards in the world are going to be like when I get back there." You know. Yep. Have they given up on all the crap that they were doing 250 years ago or whatever it was that they were supposed to be going back to? And so, so it's no big surprise that the view of humanity in this movie is not exactly ideal. Right. So, I mean, probably everyone's seen this movie, but just for people who d- might not know, it, it opens up with four people in a spacecraft somewhere in deep space near the speed of light. And the theory is that as you travel towards the speed of light, you'll sort of bend time and space. So while, I don't know, maybe at that point, six or eight months had passed on the ship, maybe 200 or 300 years had passed for actual Earth. And so they were going to basically travel time and then return to Earth and do some sciencey thing. It's kind of the science and actually what they're very ambiguous, I think. It's supposed to just be sort of stock sci-fi basis well there's something a, a, a nugget in there even that i really appreciate because you have to think what kind of a person is willing to go and be of the guinea pig of that kind of experiment mm-hmm. like, what do you have to think of humanity to be willing to just leave it all behind and know that everything that you know will love and appreciate that's here will be gone when you get back yeah and there's a great idea so that something goes wrong with the ship they crash land on what they think is a distant planet somewhere in the constellation of Orion. And unfortunately, the one female who was sort of broodmare, 
wherever they wound up, she died. And so it's just these three dudes and they're on this planet stranded. And Taylor, the captain, played by Charlton Heston, he's sort of it's like post 60s cynical idealist, right? I think there's a there's no coincidence that this movie came out when it did in 68 cuz he sort of embodied the begrudge angry hate the world post hippie archetype. You know what I mean? Like you ever run into an old hippie now? Like someone who was a hippie back in the day and still is? They are some of the most upset you will ever encounter at least that's been my experience where do, where do we find these kind of people out of curiosity art fairs art fairs art fairs <laughs> yeah uh there's uh, we were alice and i years ago we're at this art fair and we ran into some of these dudes still wearing the tie-dye still got the ponytail but it's all white bald on top and they're just the angriest dudes they're so cynical and the heston character movie reminded me of that because he's got these lofty ideals for man you know he thinks human beings should be peaceful and treat each other equally and stuff but he's observed the human race for long enough and he it doesn't right so he's kind of got this pompous arrogance to him where he thinks he's in a position to judge all of humanity and he judges it wanting you know which is which is so funny because he has so much in common with what you would classify as the main villain of the movie. Mm -hmm. And what is the last line that the villain says to him right before the last line he says about him, where's he going? Going to go. And he's going to go his destiny. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. All So he start, there's this arc in the movie where Taylor starts off being very cynical and very hateful almost towards humanity. And you asked why someone would want to basically and leave everything they ever cared about behind. In his case, his motivation is because the human race sucks and he doesn't like anybody and he doesn't like anything. And so he starts off like that, but then over the course of the movie, ends up in this ape world, kind of towards the end, he develops, well, he wants to defend humanity, right? He wants the humans to have been better than the apes. But then of course, that dream is squashed at the end <laughs> when he realizes were the big screw-ups all along well and you know i'm a i would say new world atheist myself like i'm i'm not someone who falls into the religious side of things born catholic and has kind of walked away from it and there's a he, he, a note that he makes when the head of the science in this world of the ape world is also the minister of the church like he basically he's in charge of keeping track of all of the church records and keeping those in line with science or more importantly, keeping the science in line with, you know, when, when the scientists in the movie finally prove to, you know, him that, Oh, humanity was here first. And there's that moment where it's like, well, no shit. And I'm supposed to keep the apes from knowing that because if you went and saw what he's about to see and understood it, there, there's only one place that being human can go. We have yep. to keep ourselves from becoming human. Now, does it require a, a tyrannical world to make that have, keep that from happening? Uh, this is the only thing that I could think could almost could detract from like what was probably the intended purpose of the movie is that it, it seems like no matter who you are, being the leader of society is going to inevitably end up with a sh shitty society where violence and caste systems and taking advantage of each other are the norm. Because that's all still around. Okay, so this is what I think is maybe the secret, like, esoteric implication of the movie, which is also what leads me to think that maybe it's not so much, like, just bland, old, anti-human propaganda shit, but cautionary tale in general. The real moral is perhaps that this is where tyranny leads you. The human beings wound up destroying themselves because they got so wrapped up in their pursuit of technology and dominance that i mean look at the ape society it has a class system based on race you know the the orangutans are this the chimps are that the gorillas are that they're separated into a caste system their society is built on whole their whole justification is painting the human being as the enemy but to do that they're 
enacting the same very worst traits of humanity. So really, it's like, mm -hmm. are humans the bad guys or is this sort of, I mean, for lack of a better word, statism, is that actually the enemy of this movie? Or we could even take that a step further, society itself, but the bad guy. The minute people start organizing immediately, this is the inevitability of that. Is that what they want us to believe? Because it does seem like if you follow the people that would would classify kind of, uh, the authoritarians, it always seems like that they're they're hell bent on destruction. Like they want to destroy what is human and what is here. They want to destroy the best things about themselves, and so the apes they focus on all of humankind's worst traits. Which, all right, sure, I can buy that humans have bad traits. I mean, there's never anything that's one hundred percent positive. But what they and I think maybe the movie is trying to get people who are of that anti-human mindset to see is that this is just what happens when any creature would get together and try to hold narrative. It's going to wind up oppressing itself and maybe eventually destroying itself. And it's worth noting that, you know, in the movie, the ape society is sort of this like grungy mid stone agey looking place you know like all the buildings are made of clay and they they swing clubs around and stuff it's very primitive in the original script by rod serling the ape society was actually like modern six mm -hmm. the apes would walk around in fedoras and they can go to the movies and stuff it was supposed to be an exact parallel to modern human society uh and the only reason they didn't go with that is budget reasons so that's like the, the goofy caveman looking ape city. But in the original script, it was supposed to be more obviously a, a parallel that the apes were on the exact same evolutionary trajectory as humankind. Well, see, and I almost, I almost would have questioned whether or not that was deliberate as a way of showing that the apes are inevitably more in touch with nature. And that even as their society evolved, they never left nature behind because that's what human beings do. Human beings have no respect for nature and everything we do is mm -hmm. to get away from it. Yeah, that's how. So that, that's actually interesting. That's what I was. Well, right. When I, I actually just watched the movie last night because I wanted to I wanted it fresh in my head. I like justify the apes society in my own little head canon. I'm like, oh, well, this is why it looks this way in in universe, because they're apes and they're supposed to be more mm -hmm. in touch. But. Knowing, like, beyond the fourth wall, really just a budgetary thing, and in the actual script, the message that Serling had in mind, because, like I said before, it was Serling who came up with the twist at the end, but it was also him who came up with the whole lead-up to that twist modern society. And so I wonder if some of the impact from the his ending was perhaps lost or obscured in the changing of the set of the ape society, you know what I mean? Like, it could just be that differences between the humans and the apes in the movie are exacerbated by the difference in their setting. Whereas in the original story, it wasn't necessarily supposed to be that way. Interesting. Like, I would almost read it as it makes it more poignant. Mm. Because it's like, it's the, the closer you get to humanity, the, the worse things become. And so, I mean, there was definitely within their, their culture staying the hell away from being human in any way they could and keeping human beings, frankly, away from them. Like they, they, they didn't play nice with humans. The only, only reason they were ever around in the first place, to even bothered capturing them other than just killing them was because you had some of those chimps that wanted to experiment on them and thought maybe we could learn something about them by cutting them open. That was literally the only reason that they were tolerated. Because Zayas, like the only good humans, are cut open human, basically, which is also, you know, amusing. Because as the keeper of the word, he's also apparently very aware throughout the whole movie that yeah, of course, humanity was an advanced civilization prior to the apes, and look what they did. Yes, you maniacs. <laughs> there's there's some definite idea of there being an esoteric history to the planet, lost civilization stuff, and I think. It, it amuses me because nowadays with the internet, there are so many circles of people who are talking about like, there was a lost civilization 10,000, 12,000 years ago or whatever, and who really built the pyramids and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that people will often point to is how, for instance, 
Egyptian civilization, like the older you go, the, the more advanced it seems to be. So rather than that society following a progressive trajectory, it actually seems to follow a degenerative trajectory. And that's one of the things that mm-hmm. is said at the end of this movie when and Cornelius, who's one of the scientist chimps, who's sort of like a he's he's a timid renegade. He doesn't want to go against the flow, but his ideas lead him there anyway. Uh, he goes out to this big site where he found human artifacts. And he says that, you know, I noticed that the further I dig, the deeper I go, the more complex the technology seems to be. And at the deepest levels, I find human remains, implying that there was, in fact, a lost civilization of human beings. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is what Dr. Zayas reacts against. Yeah, he's like, there's no, like, if the, if the, if the apes ever do this, like, this would be, destroy our entire civilization. Like I said, it's, it's interesting, it, it's not without obvious reasons why you'd have the head of your science also be the head of your religion, which, if we look through history, look at how much of science has been controlled by, say, the Catholic Church or, you know, the, the Arab Church right. in, in that part of the world. Uh, religion has always had its finger on the direction and speed and how science has moved throughout history. So that's it's not even like a it's not even almost not allegorical. It's almost historic. Sure. Well, and in the movie, the movie makes it really easy for the audience because the different types of apes exclusively occupy different social um, positions. And religious and scientific leaders, the orangutans, they also happen to be the entire political class, right? So there's science, religion, <laughs> yeah. and politics all in one. And uh, it, it's the actual chimpanzees who do the real scientific experimentation. Like they're the ones doing the work. But the ones who are supposed to interpret it mm-hmm. are the orangutans. And that would be Dr. Zayas, who yeah. I think the best scene of him, a lot of good scenes with him, because he's like the perfect tyrant type of guy. But when Taylor, he gets shot in the neck and so he can't speak. And this is part of why he's wrapped up in this whole, is he or isn't he an intelligent being? It takes like the first, I don't know, half of the movie to unravel. But when he finally heals... Bright eyes, as they call yes. them, because it looks like he's thinking. <laughs> it's almost like he. It's almost like he knows what we're doing. And he find when he finally heals, he's got the take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. And that's how he reveals that he can speak, and everyone goes ape shit over it, pun intended. But when he finally is able to sit down with Cornelius and Zira, his two ape world, they're in the ape world. They're the good ones, right? They're they're willing to hear him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, well. It- are they good or are they the ones that put science above religion? Because, I mean, she's been cutting up apes or cutting up human beings for a long while. And the only thing that's interesting about this one is he can talk. That's true. That is true. Like, I don't know that that's necessarily good or if it's just, well, she entertains a, a particular interest in this one. Okay. I mean, it, it even get to the end of the point where he's like, you know, I want to kiss you. And she's like, oh, but you're so <laughs> damn ugly. All right, let me- like, she still sees him as a dirty animal. Yeah. Well, I'll put it this way then. Maybe they're not good, but they're the best. Like, for the interests of our character, they are the best. They become yeah. his confederates. And I would argue that, especially Zira, like, maybe there is a sort of character development in them where maybe they begin to see that humans aren't so bad, you know, conditioned from a young age. Well, I think it's there's something special, at the very least, mm-hmm. about this one. And that maybe there is more to them than we know. But the conditioning is still the conditioning. And you can only go so far so fast with that. And even they, their scientific opinion about Taylor and why he is so intelligent is that he's a mutant. You know, so he tells them when he gets his voice back, he says, look, I came here in a craft that sails across the sky, fell from the sky and blah, blah, blah. And of course, they don't believe him because in their None world, that's possible. air traffic, air, uh, any sort of space travel is totally impossible. And as they're barking at him about how this is a complete scientific, he's sitting there fiddling with a piece of paper. He makes a paper airplane. And as they're still talking about how flight is impossible, he just throws his little paper airplane across the room and it sails in the air and then falls down. And they're just dumb. I love that scene. 
because it's it's funny, but it's also just illustrative of how experimentation can destroy what people hold dear. But the best part of that scene is then after he demonstrates the flight, Dr. Zaius comes in and Cornelius and Zira are like, doctor, try out this thing that he made to see what it does. It flies on the air and he doesn't do it. He just crumples it up and says, nonsense. Doesn't even care. <laughs> right. But what like, I think when you find out is that at the end of it, there's, there's nothing here that he probably really didn't know. It's just he, he his job is to keep the apes from walking down that path to keep them from becoming human human because inherently in being human is your own mm -hmm. self-destruction. But he's wrong. I think I think in my utopian analysis, right, I would agree like as well. Your pursuit of preserving whatever you think is of society is exactly the thing that's going to lead you to your own destruction in trying not to be humans mm -hmm. you're going to become the worst type of humans that is totalitarian statists mm -hmm. so there were a few like easter eggy kind of things i i pointed out to you before mm -hmm. the beginning of this uh when they the big kind of turning point in the what the narrative is in this is actually where they what do you call it where they have their trial and you know, they're not letting him speak there. It's really funny. It's like, well, he, he's not an ape. Non-apes don't have rights. Like, so why right. are we even bothering with this? And, you know, he's not allowed to talk. He's not allowed to defend himself. Like, they have to have the apes speak for him. Like, they make him the, the whole show trial. But to me, the trial almost seemed to be allegorical for um, Darwinism for this idea of evolution. And it was, it was almost like evolution itself was on trial here. And it, it, this would be something I, like I'd look to you for, because I know that you have the receipts say historically about the, the big players will say in the utopian movement, uh, it almost seemed like a nod to like, ha, we were right all along, you know, kind of slipped into the movie as a reference to like, say Darwinism and, his role in its writings and its role within the greater uh, utopian mm -hmm. project. Yeah. Are you familiar with the Scopes monkey trial? Uh, a little bit about, of it. So I think that was probably at least nodded to in this scene because obviously mm -hmm. trial, it's, it's clear. Uh, but for most of the movie, assuming you, uh, pretending it's 1968 and you're in the movie theater and you don't have the meme baggage of the ending of this movie that we all have going into it. And you don't know this. The movie is telling you throughout the whole thing that he just somehow landed on another world where the evolutionary lineage is flip-flopped, mm -hmm. right? So apes evolved from humans, whereas, you know, humans evolved from apes or whatever. You don't know that it's actually the same planet all along. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that you're right, that it's supposed to be a sort of victory lap for evolution in that it's just demonstrating take all kinds of different forms but it's also saying that and it's raising the question probably about animal rights mm -hmm. you know if in fact apes do come from humans or if humans come from apes what does that mean about how so-called evolutionary progenitors mm -hmm. so should and this is what if you've seen the newer planet of the apes movies specifically the first of the the new trilogy there's a lot of that to this. Like, how should we be treating chimpanzees close to us intellectually and evolutionarily? We need to rethink about our relationship with these other species. So the, the moral of the story is don't shoot Harambe. The moral of the story is don't shoot Harambe. Don't capture Harambe. And maybe even don't how to sign language. Because, you know, captivity is, would you do it to a human? If not, then you shouldn't do it to an ape. Is, I think, a push for, in the newer ones... But in the older one, in the original one, I think that there are a lot of going on. Because on the one hand, it is very obviously just a display of a totalitarian state. I mean, they strip him naked before he's allowed to hear, present his case, which even... And the court, they do this wonderful thing where he asserts, Taylor asserts his own intellectual autonomy, that he is a thinking creature... That he is—he has the ability to reason on his own, and the chuckles and says, oh, "If you can reason, then tell me what's the second commandment of our ape law." 
you know, rote memorization. Right. You because you don't have rote memorization, you can't reason with yeah. one having nothing to do with the and other. And he says, "Look, culture." And so the guy cuts him off. Of course, you don't know our culture. You can't think. So it becomes this beautiful demonstration of circular logic, which, you know, the movie is about two different species, but it could be a totalitarian society throughout history. Mm-hmm. It's that's the way it goes. Well, there's the, the classic line where Heston's character, Taylor, <laughs> you know, where, where he, he says in the middle of the court trial as he's watching you know, his defenders just be run over by the, the orangutans. He's like, well, clearly some some apes yes. are more equal than others, which obviously is a, a nod to mm-hmm. another Right, writer. right. <laughs> Love the time. It speaks to nation in the movie between the humans and the apes. It takes a back seat because the ruling class in the ape society is perfectly willing to destroy Zira and Cornelius as well. So they're sort of, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily any sort of special favor for apes. They're willing to cut down anybody who gets in the way of, mm-hmm. you know, the ape narrative, even if it means destroying their own. Um, I don't remember the exact charge that they leveled. Actually, no, I have it written down. They charged Cornelius and Zero with scientific heresy, which sounds like it's probably a pretty heavy <laughs> charge, yeah. considering that they're willing to then like do this whole jailbreak thing and escape. Well, which which is also amusing because heresy isn't a scientific yeah, term; it's a religious term. This we're in a world where science and religion are equally wrapped up in each other. Like heresy is something that you do against the church. What 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 is it if it's a, against the uh, the government? It's oh a treason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be treason if it's against the government. But no, they've created heresy, which is you know not not lost on anyone. I think no, especially these days. I mean, you tack the adjective in front of heresy and it, it sounds like it would be a paradoxical concept and indeed it is and yet people seem to act out its existence constantly there, there are certain scientific dogmas allowed to be questioned i mean i don't want to say that if you made <laughs> dr zayas a uh, you know a white-haired man with a mousy face and some thin-rimmed glasses you couldn't hear him saying, I am the science. All I'll say is at the <laughs> at the end of the trial scene, when they when Dr. Zayas says, take him away, when they drag Taylor out, they do force a mask on his face. But <laughs> <laughs> that, that was also not lost on me. <laughs> that did jump out at me. So, oh, shit. I mean, that's the that's the first thing any totalitarian regime does or any, you know, regime bent on uncultivating knowledge to a very specific end that you're going to silence the people that need silenced. So it's it's no question that like there's a symbolic mm-hmm. meaning behind masks. Anyone who questions this, you, know, you put the put the mask on. That's that's where your place is. Your place is to be silent right. and just let it happen. It's like a res- there if you want to get kind of weird about it, I think that there's even a sort of maybe a subconscious meaning to it in that it's also restricting your breathing. Maybe not fatally, but mm-hmm. symbolically to an extent, it's actually like somebody else is asserting control over your ability to suck in air. Yeah. And that to me is like a very fundamental and egregious sin, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, Especially the word spirit comes from the Latin word spiritus, which means breath. And so it's like a sort of quote unquote spiritual assault. I don't mean to get into like woo woo shit. I just think it's an interesting linguistic thing. No, no. I mean, we're. As somebody who studied linguistics, I know that's it's never beyond me what words are actually yeah. mean where they're from, uh, because put it this way: uh, the people that we are kind of leveling the series at, they're they're certainly not above changing the meanings of words at a whim for their end goal. So I think paying attention to linguistics and how that evolves is absolutely very important to kind of understanding where things have come from, where they're going, and how much of it might be part of a greater plan or more of a greater ideology. I totally agree with that at 100%. And it's on the subject of language, I wonder how many people uh, realized or were annoyed by the fact that as great as this movie is, why the speak English? And why the hell does Taylor not say, huh, why do I understand these apes? I mean, to me, <laughs> that seems like the, the absolute glaring element yes. of this that like, that they would have 
ended up with the same, all of the same stuff in here. I mean, we, people across the across the world don't even speak like each other. Like, why didn't they speak German? Right. Why didn't they speak any, any kind of one of the African languages? This is supposed to be 2,000 years after um, Taylor's own time, and they perfect modern 60s style English. It's the biggest plot hole you can imagine. Yeah. You're just kind of waiting for one of those, like, yeah, one, like I mean, listen, what is it? I, I, if nothing else, the, the, the best part, I think, of the movie is absolutely the, the teenage kid that suddenly pops up at the end of the movie who totally talks like any teenage kid of the era. And and Charlton Heston gives him a speech about never trust anybody uh-huh. over thirty. Yeah. Kid. <laughs> there he is again. Our post sixties. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and I mean, let's be honest. That's still something that they're trying to get, trying to really level the kids today. That generational warfare. That idea of don't trust anybody because you know they're just they're just trying to hold hold forward motion of society mm-hmm. back, and you want to keep moving. You want to keep that progress rolling. Yes. Yeah. There are no good adults there are no impressive adults in the movie dr zayas is an ass cornelius is a pussy I, okay like zira maybe zira might be the best in that she at least seems to she's brave right she's courageous mm-hmm. she does i think show some compassion in the end towards yeah. humans i would be willing to accept that her character may be changed yeah. over the course of knowing humans and that's great but aside from her, there are no good adults. They're all a bunch of bumbling morons. Even Taylor, like he's this man of power. Which, but he's, he's at, not at any point in the movie is he concerned with the liberation of the other people. He's only concerned with his own freedom. Yeah. You know, he's not like, oh, we need to get these people out of here. He steals that one woman, so he's going to get what he needs and just rides off into the sunset. Yeah, he's not a hero at all. But well, but once again, I would argue that that kind of goes towards the end. The, the The moral of the story really is that, yeah, he's human. He's selfish because mm-hmm. he, he didn't think of anyone else. He didn't think about trying to break up the entire ape civilization and show them what they did. Like he wasn't interested in that. Like yeah, if you guys want to go and utilize this information from this cave to shake up your society, have at it. I just want to get the hell away from you. Good. You know, I want to. I want to pursue my best life. He doesn't say a single word about is it wrong to imprison human beings or anything like that. And I, I, I kind of even get the impression that if the character were to be probably expressed disdain for the other I'm humans. Not one of them. You know, right. Like, They're not me. Yeah, they probably deserve to be locked up. Well, I mean, he, he actually does say as much, you know, he's like, well, you know, back on Earth, you know, I had all the women you could want. And well... I guess you're the closest thing I'm going to find to that here. Oh, right. Yeah. What does he say? He said, you, you, it's just so dismissive of, of what's her name there? Uh, uh, Nova. Nova. Yeah. You're the only girl in town. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, damn. And you, dude. <laughs> I mean, no, if you're going to stuck with a, you know, a woman that can't speak and, you know, in April, I mean, you could do worse, but still. <laughs> yeah. It's, like I said, it's definitely not without me that there was a certain perspective of humanity that they were trying to paint mm-hmm. and in, in in the most ham-fisted way i think they could they did yes well and so after the trial there's a really important thing that happens so taylor is basically condemned and the what actually cut his nuts off that's <laughs> that's what he's uh charged with is nut removal that's right that's right we are in the well, that's where they're gonna start right yeah and then they're gonna poke and prod in his brain while he's still alive at what the hell his deal is. Yeah. So Dr. Zayas brings him into his office and essentially admits to Taylor that he knows that the whole story about him being some scientific fabrication of Cornelia, which is what the prosecutor had claimed, that was bunk. He knows that he's naturally the way he is. He doesn't quite believe Taylor's story about coming from outer space, but he is concerned with, or rather, he, there being more of them. Yes, right. He thinks that there could be more like him admitting that humanity actually does have the potential to be intelligent. He just thinks it's a bad thing. Yeah. So he, he offers Taylor a way. If you just admit to my narrative that the humans are be- below the apes in the social pecking order, and then show us where you come from. But of course, Taylor can't do that. 
And it's a wonderful scene because as Taylor gets dragged out of Dr. Zayas's office, he's screaming, you know, you could cut me and pro poke and prod me and do whatever. Remember, you do it because you're afraid of me. What are you afraid of, doctor? And it's he's calling out the fear of the totalitarian. Well, what's more? So, I mean, if, if he now I don't blame him for not trusting Dr. Zayas, but in that moment, he could have everything he wants. If he just said, screw it, you know, have some humility and just pretend, oh, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you guys are totally greater than us. Now I'm going to go off in the woods and do my thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't for a minute think Zayas would have let that happen. But he could have gotten everything he wanted right there. His pride, which is one of the great sins of man, <laughs> as they'll, they'll make you believe in this, prevents him from, like, you have a whole other third of the movie because his pride keeps him from getting what he wants. Yes. It prevents him from taking it because he'd have to choke on himself right he does not want to admit that he is a missing link between you know some pre-ape being and the apes themselves he want to admit his inferiority and he he's like I, he doesn't want to admit that his story is just a story like he mm -hmm. he seems like the kind of guy who demands to be believed yeah. you know he's a very he, like i said he's a man that's his, his motivating factor is his own power because he's got no other reason as he makes evident from his speech at the beginning of the movie. He's never really found anybody else worthy of respect. So all yeah. he... And, you know, from our, our, our perspective, I mean, God, how much, how much of him is exactly the same as Isaiah's? Mm -hmm. And how many times is culture pushed at the whims of one of these people running into another person, you know? It's like nations are led by these immovable forces and rise and fall as they, you know, the people in charge of them do. Right. Yeah, that's really the conflict of the movie is with Zayas. And you're right that he could have just slinked out of it. But I like your analogy to these two characters as sorts of being the immovable forces that are states that we experience now where, you know, the, the two, neither of them wants to bend. And so this is what winds up destroying lives. I mean, look at the look at what ends up like all of this. What does it bring down on Zira and um, Cornelius? Yeah, like he could have just walked away from all this. Their lives would have been better. Mm -hmm. They would have never had to deal with the heresy crap. There would have never been all the violence in town. Like he just could have just left in the middle of the night. It could have been a non thing. Yeah, exactly. But his, the needs of these two men to push against each other, you know, on the. Uh, Dr. Zayas society, and he's willing to add antagonism and violence more so than there already was into his society to prove he's right. And Taylor's willing to not give a shit about anything but himself to prove he's right. Exactly. Yeah. To the, to the detriment of Cornelius and Zira, who like, you know, if you just look at them for who they are, they were the only people that ever helped out Taylor. So he's in debt to them, but he screws mm -hmm. them over. And also Dr. Zayas, like the, the two best and smartest scientists you have. Like, think of what assets they could be to your society. But he's also willing to grind them into dust because they mm -hmm. went against him. And also at the very end, if you caught it, he also brings in the kid, Lucius, mm -hmm. into his charge. Like, he's in trouble too. The kid who yeah. Heston was just saying, you know, don't trust anyone over 30. Well, he shouldn't have trusted you, dude. Yeah. Because you just got him wrapped up in your bullcrap kid's life. Well, he says it enough. He's like, just another adult, man. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. <laughs> He's, his, his dialogue, the kid's dialogue is pretty rough. I mean, it's... <laughs> well, uh, but it's, it's, honestly, it's one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's, it's, it's so glaringly of that time. Yeah. That like, which is, which I think would be what would be if you had kids like in this world. Because that's the thing that you, this is very, the cast is pretty slim in what you need. And you only see kind of like the adult parts of society. Like this would be only if you were ever out in the work environment and you didn't have to think about how these people actually lived beyond that or their family structures and things like. Mm -hmm. And so this kid is just like the, the only view we get of the society beyond like the adult machinations of it. And it's just so much a kid thing. It's like, yeah, the hell with you, buddy. Right. <laughs> who, are you? who are you? You're not my mom. You're not my dad. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's very funny, and he, he like repeats all the stock lines, like you can't trust the older generation. Yeah, he just says things like that, and it's amusing. 
And he winds up kind of being right. Because mm-hmm. when the older generation are cynics like Taylor, libertarians like uh, Dr. Zayas, yeah, you kind of shouldn't trust those people because they only care about themselves. Well, and I would actually argue that that's representative of saying, I think, I think what you will ultimately we're going to come to, whatever we're trying to find in the middle of this <laughs> uh, project, is the great paradox is that you were talking about people who want to control the lives of everyone else. Because they believe they have the right way to live. They have the right way that society is supposed to be. And to a degree, um, are we any different than them in what we would suggest? You know, maybe we have a different way that we believe the world should be run. But given the ability to be dictators, to keep them from getting control, do we, take, do we pick up that mantle ourselves and try and lead, lead the way? Right. Because so much of what they say, it's like... <sighs> You just want to see, God, if I was in charge, this we'd fix all this. Mm-hmm. And there is a natural human, you know, natural human desire to do that. I think you and I would suggest, well, no, the, the real thing is to perhaps not fight our human nature, but embrace the fact that we are human and can make decisions. To cho- choose not to do that. Yeah. But. Yeah. I don't believe necessarily in these sorts of inevitableist arguments about human nature. Because it's always presented through a certain limiting lens, like the human capacity to make always looked at through the capacity of states and big corporations and stuff to make decisions. Just like the human being's capacity to discover discover truth is always filtered through the lens of either religion or established. You know, yeah. Uh, the any given scientist or scientific organization or religion's ability to create some sort of logical deduction about what is has virtually no bearing on my to go out into my backyard and to do experiments in agriculture you know like it's separate but these decision making processes are always looked at in their largest most macro expression mm-hmm. and so in this movie we see beings ability to make decisions basically is reduced to the human race's maximum capacity for destruction but the reality is, is that on, only when human beings have assembled themselves in gigantic artificial social constructions is that ability to destroy themselves actually even possible. Well, it's, it's always, well, what do we do? What would we do about, you know, nukes? Right, exactly. And, and I'm like, well, who's going to have the money to afford maintenance of nukes? Mm-hmm. Like, unless you're robbing an entire population blind in an effort to afford them, nobody would. Yeah, like it would it would severely limit, you know, what kind of science, like what kind of science you could do in that regard. The only reason anyone would have, I I imagine that it would immediately become more profitable to take all of that plutonium or whatever it is that we use nowadays and go and turn it into energy than it would be to blow it up. I mean, it's literally destruction of things. There's no money in that Mm -hmm. unless you're using it as a cudgel to force people. And once again. Even that's not a great way to do things. It's like a last resort for most nations. Right. Well, and I agree with that. And especially nowadays, it's easier to see that. That this movie is an artifact of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that you could really make this particular movie today. You could make a Planet of the Apes movie today, but you couldn't. It, the nuke ending would not have the same impact it would have had in 68. And I think that's why the... The newer trilogy was it's kind of charming that ending now because yeah, it's like yeah. oh this is what they thought was going to happen right <laughs> yeah it's almost a relief you're like oh not there cool but nowadays when they make the planet of the apes movies what are they about they're about a man-made pathogen that escapes and kills all of humanity and gives the apes intelligence uh have you seen any of the new ones? uh i haven't watched the newest one okay because there are three uh, the one that came out, yeah. I, I know I watched the ones back in like the, say like the late 90s, early 2000s. I want to say like maybe it was one like 2005. I think it was the last thing I would have seen. Okay, yeah. I don't, they made a new trilogy and I think it's like, it started in 2009, I want to say. Yeah. And I don't think I've watched any of those ones. I thought about okay. going back and revisiting them yeah. uh, for this. Maybe we'll just make a whole episode out of like the, watching that series or something. I would recommend those three. I actually find them enjoyable movies, um, but mm-hmm. they, they definitely, they shift the focus. It's a complete reboot of the narrative that we get in the original. 
but it's about a man-made pathogen essentially that makes apes intelligent but you know has deleterious effects on the human being well yeah everything is uh you know man-made pathogens past a certain point that's what they all go with well at some point i'll actually have you watch that show utopia yeah we should do that because that one like you're gonna you're gonna literally some of the names that they drop within the show like you're you're gonna you're gonna be in tears on the floor like oh my god i can't believe they said that wow yeah i look forward to that it's been on my list for a while so maybe we can do an episode or or a few on that when 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 they start bringing george bernard shaw like sayings into stuff and you're just like what <laughs> uh, all right well i think i think we've kind of hit the nail on the head of what we were trying to get out of this movie what do you think i think so i'm looking through i've got a whole ton of notes way too many if it's interesting there are a couple things that dr zayas says at the very end of the movie where he's quoting from their sacred scrolls or whatever the hell they call their bible and it's just how man and at, it has to be remembered that at this point, Taylor is at his most pro-human that he is in the movie. Yeah. He's just been vindicated that human beings were there, that their biological capacity was greater than the apes was. And so I think mm-hmm. to him and his sort of like just only go forward mindset, this is a victory for him. That we're smarter, we're better. And Dr. Zayas even says... If humans are so great, then why are they gone? And Taylor, who at the beginning of the movie was talking about how man makes war against his brother and all this stuff, the only explanation for Dr. Zayas is, oh, it must have been some sort of natural catastrophe. There was a plague or maybe a meteor strike or something. It doesn't even enter into his mind that maybe it was the damn nukes. So says, beware the beast man. For he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into the jungle. For his is the harbinger, or for he is the harbinger of death. Uh, and then uh, further he says, Let's see. Uh, Dr. Zayas is always... Oh, okay. So this is where he's saying that he knows more than he's ever let on about man. So Dr. Zayas says of the human race, his his wisdom must walk hand in hand. His emotions must rule his brain. He must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him, even himself. The Forbidden Zone was once a paradise. Your breed, Taylor's breed, made it ages ago. So he knows that the Forbidden Zone, which is where this archaeological stuff was, mm-hmm. that it used to be wonderful, like Eden, it was a garden paradise, but human beings turned it into a desert. And so paying attention, as a 1968 viewer of this movie, you maybe you're going to see where the movie ends, you know? Yeah. So I, I appreciated that. Well, like I said, there's, there's, there's so much in there, like, because you kind of... They set it up for him to ride off into the sunset. He's got the girl, he's got supplies, and he's just going to go be happy. And they steal that moment from him the minute Zay says, what's he going to his destiny? What's his destiny? It's the destiny of all men. Yep. Destruction. Its own destruction. At its own hands. <laughs> so for those of you listening who don't know, I can't imagine anyone doesn't know. And, you know, it's a great movie. I love this movie, so I would recommend watching it. And as you've said to me before, um, it good you can know the ending and it'll still be good oh, like yeah, spoiler yeah the, the fear of spoilers is kind of dumb but uh it ends with him riding along the beach and you just see like this strange gnarled me- metal at the bottom what is that and then they show more metal like oh what is that and then he gets off his horse and he falls into the sand and he says you really did it you maniacs you blew it up damn you all that and then the camera zooms out and it reveals the Statue of Liberty. Half melted, yep. half buried <laughs> Statue of Liberty. He was home all along. Human beings had nuked themselves into oblivion. In, in, in 20, and it, was, it would have been essentially in 2,500 years. Yeah. 
because that's what the last thing he saw or it was like 2,500 years in the future or whatever. Or maybe it was just the year 2,500, oh. so maybe it's only 500 years in the future. I, I, I wrote it down, actually. He said at the very beginning of the ship, they are in the year 3978. Okay. So it's been about 2,000 years. Okay. So in 2,000 years, humanity completely destroyed itself. Yeah. And nature did what nature does. Uh, it evolved and something else took over. Apes became intelligent and also experienced a tremendous amount of physical degradation. That's one thing that stood out to me along with the English speaking in the movie is, you know, a chimpanzee could rip their arms off, no problem. But in this movie, you got little Charlton Heston freaking kicking gorillas in the face and there go flying down the steps and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> So they, they ex I guess there was some sort of trade-off in brains muscles. But like we would imagine that any culture that starts to pay attention to brains over brawn, that would be an inevitability. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not going to spend all your time hang swinging from trees when you start reading books. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, how would we have fared against the caveman of our own, you know, our own history? Oh, yeah. They probably could have ripped us from them from them because they had to fight they had to fight animals barehanded. One hundred percent. Yeah, we're all very we're very weak, but we become tool users, and that's what happened with the apes. Horses, they carry guns, and it's there's a question in the movie is how much of their actual technological development is their own creation, and how much of it did they yeah. just sort of reassemble what the humans had left them? Yeah. I would given the basis of their scientific dogmatism and how Dr. Zayas is completely unwilling to consider alternative points of view, I'd imagine probably a great deal of it was just sort of found by the apes. And yeah. Figure much of it out. And they took ownership of it. Mm -hmm. You know, they got to decide which of it they'd keep and which of it they'd get rid of. Right. Because, I mean, that's a whole lot of scientific evolution in 2,000 years. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know a lot of science can happen in that amount of time, but from where they would have been starting, that's... Eh, like that's we're going through the Green Revolution, the Bronze Age, all in a very short amount of time. Yeah, they they definitely got help from from their uh, from here so greatly. Uh, Heston yeah. says it, you know, they were here before you, and they were better than you are. Uh, you know, technologically speaking, I guess he was right. But the moral and the what I take away from this movie, as far as like there being a, is that it's kind of up to the individual because collective morality, be you an ape or a human, is going to lead you to a road of ruin. The apes are totalitarians mm -hmm. and the humans are dead because they killed themselves. Mm -hmm. If there's any way forward, it's to just be a conscious individual. And I, I say that because also knowing beyond the fourth wall that this was written by Rod Serling and having watched every Twilight kind of gotten an idea for where his mind was at i think that that's probably the message that he would have wanted to be conveyed like it's up to mm -hmm. the individual so you know don't trust yourself to these larger systems because they will either be or murderous or both well there you have it folks yeah the expert <laughs> has spoken oh boy there's a okay <laughs> you know what there is a great like i said there are four at least four twilight zone episodes are very, very similar to this movie. The Rip Van Winkle caper, which is about astronauts who, I think they're astronauts, who freeze themselves in time and then wake up in the future. There is, I shot an arrow into the air, which astronauts traveling to a distant planet, crashing, and then having to figure out where the hell they are. And the- t Don't they disappear one by one? Um, no, no, not this, they- Okay. There's actually like a power stroke. Yeah. They, one of them winds up shooting the other one because they're lost and abandoned. And then the final dude left winds up crossing this canyon and he's in fucking Reno. Yeah. They were on Earth all along. It's the exact same twist. Probe seven over and out, which is where a, an astronaut gets stranded on a planet. And the whole time it's this futuristic thing. But at the end, you find out that his name is Adam and he meets this native chick and he names her Eve this repopulation thing it's very similar to taylor and nova yeah and finally people are alike all over which is an episode where yet again an astronaut goes to mars and they welcome him with a very impressed about this human being and they give him a house and at the end it turns out that 
the house is actually a zoo habitat and they've put the human being in a cage in a zoo to be watched like an animal for the Martians own amusement. It's like, you know, the reversal in the planet of the apes where the humans are caged beings for the amusement and experiment of the apes. And what's funny about that particular episode is the guy who actually is the human in it is played by the owl who is Cornelius in the planet of the apes movie. <laughs> So it's, it's never far from the source. Right, exactly. Right on. Well, uh, I had a lot of fun today, Bon. Uh, hopefully we get to do some more of these. We'll have to come up with a fun list. But uh, hopefully uh, people out there enjoy the conversation, enjoy kind of where we're going with it, and uh, have a good one. Yeah, thanks for doing this with me, man. I had a great time. Everything seems good. And these people just kind of gang.